I want to start this morning with a question. And it's a question that I wish I could stop and take time to hear the answer from every single one of you that is uh, here online today. Uh, and the question is this, where did your Jesus story begin? What led you to a relationship with Jesus? And I would love to hear those replies. I do love to hear those stories because those stories are always inspiring. They're motivating. It's awesome to hear about what got people started writing their faith story. And so uh, if, if, you're, if you like to share it, I love to hear it. Let's grab coffee sometime. I would love to hear how your faith story began. My own story started with Saturday morning cartoons um, and a Lutheran preacher that came on to share a gospel message on ABC before cartoons started at 7 a.m. And I was up early waiting to, to watch the Super Friends at 7. And from 6.30 to 7, this Lutheran pastor was on there sharing the gospel and it was the first time I remember asking Jesus to forgive me. And my faith story began in that moment. And I'm, I'm sure not all of yours involves the super friends. Some might, but probably not. But I know each and every one of you has a unique story about how you began following Jesus. And today we're going to look at two very different groups of men uh, who were drawn towards Jesus. Uh, but for them, it was to a baby. The Christ child that was born to Mary and Joseph and laid in a manger 2,000 years ago. And just like us, their journey towards Jesus started in very different ways. And neither one of them involved the super friends. Now, first, we have the shepherds who are watching their sheep in fields outside of Bethlehem. And they were just minding their own business. They were doing what they do, trying to get through another night. And it was not exciting work. The work of a shepherd was pretty tedious. They were just hoping some storm wouldn't blow up and cause chaos and scare their flocks or some predator wouldn't creep down from the hills and attack their flocks. Now that's when being a shepherd got a little more exciting. But most of the time it was just standing around. And they would have been having some past the time conversations uh, throughout the night. You know, how's the wife? Good, good. How about you? Chilly tonight. Hope you brought your warm tunic. You know, that kind of stuff. They wouldn't have been expecting anything other than what happens any other night and then suddenly, the sky lit up with a light so bright, it was as if every Christmas tree light that has ever been put on a tree all lit up at the same time. And angels in all of their God-given glory appeared and announced to the shepherds that the Savior had been born in Bethlehem. And when the shepherds got over the shock, I mean, you can imagine them standing there stammering as this host of angels appears in the sky and deliver this message to them. When they get over this shock, they said to each other, let's go and see this thing that has happened. And here's what you need to know. This was an amazing moment. This moment was extraordinary, not just because of the angels. We think it's extraordinary because this host of angels appeared and lit up the sky. Yes, that made it extraordinary. But the real uh, exceptional moment here was this was news that everyone had been waiting for for hundreds of years. When the angels delivered this message that the, the Savior, the Messiah, had come, that was... That was the biggest news they could have ever hoped to hear. And the shepherds were more amazed by the message of the angels than by the angels themselves. That message 
floored them. Jesus had come. Of course, they didn't know his name yet. They didn't know, but they knew it was him, the one they had been waiting for, and they couldn't wait to go see him, so they did. And then there's another group, the Magi, the wise men. And these men were not hoping to get through the night. Quite the opposite. They looked forward to the night. They couldn't wait till nighttime because that was when they turned their eyes to the heavens to read the signs in the stars. They studied the stars' trajectories. They plotted them on charts. They studied ancient texts to learn about prophecies. And they spent their entire lives searching for spiritual truth. And they lived in this state of spiritual hunger, trying to find truth. So when they saw this special sign in the heavens, they followed it and the light led them to Jesus. And we don't know for certain what this sign was that they saw in the sky. Maybe some of you have read about the astronomical phenomenon that's going to be happening tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow night, just after sundown for about an hour and a half, you'll be able to see it just above the horizon. But Jupiter and Saturn will be as close as they have been in our uh, sight line in 800 years. And they will be basically on top of one another, Jupiter and Saturn, from our vantage point. And it forms this kind of superstar uh, type of object in the sky. And some people think this could have been the type of thing that God arranged from the dawn of time to mark the birth of Jesus and to draw those wise men to where he was born. And whether it was that or whether it was a comet or whether God supernaturally put a light into the sky, all of these are possible because they all required God's hand. But what we do know is that God led them to Jesus and to his parents, Mary and Joseph, and they arrived on the scene. The shepherds were led to what they had been waiting for. The wise men were led to an answer they were hoping was out there somewhere, but they really didn't know what it was. Both responded and went on a search that led to their finding Jesus. God's light led them and they followed. So let's take a look at their two stories in scripture quickly, and then we'll, we'll see what we can discern from these, these two stories. In Luke 2, verses 8 through 16, we see the story of the shepherds. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel referred them, reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people, the Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, these shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. And then in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 11, we read about the wise men. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? 
We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people, Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Familiar stories, but I always love reading them again because I always seem to find something new. And I'd like us to look at some different things today. What can we learn from the stories of each of these groups of men, the shepherds and the wise men? The first thing we see about them is that these men were very, very different. In fact, they could not have been much more different than they were. And the first thing we see is they were from different social status. They were from a different social status. The problem with the shepherds was not that they were dirty and smelled like sheep, although they did. Due to the constant demands of their flocks, they couldn't really observe all of the meticulous cleansing rules and the regulations that were required of the Jewish faith, so they were unclean. They were outcasts. And to make matters worse, their flocks kept them away from the temple for weeks at a time so they could not be made clean in the eyes of Jewish law. They could not go through the process to be made ceremonial clean again so they could go and worship. And so as, as a culture, they looked down on the shepherds. They mistrusted them. And they were thought to be crafty and dishonest. And people ascribed to them this uncanny ability to make off with things that didn't belong to them, that they were always taking stuff that wasn't theirs. Their reputation was so bad that they were not even allowed to testify in a Jewish court of law. It was assumed that all shepherds would lie, so therefore they were not allowed to testify. And in most people's minds, shepherds were like con men. They were viewed as being part of the lowest class of the lowest class of their culture. Now then there's the wise men. And the wise men, on the other hand, were obviously at the other end of the social spectrum. Uh, they were men of influence, definitely upper, upper class. And you say, well, how do you know that, Jeff? The best evidence of the class that they belonged to was the fact that when they came to Jerusalem, looking for the one who had been born king of the Jews, they had no trouble gaining admission to Herod's palace or even an obtaining an audience with the king himself. Now that doesn't happen if you are not a man of standing. They had to be quite important to be able to be let in to see the king uh, in that kind of moment. And the shepherds would not even been allowed past the outer gate, let alone in to see the king. The second thing we see about them was they had a very different financial status. The shepherds were among the poorest of the poor, while the wise men were among the richest of the rich. So we've got two opposite ends of the spectrum here. The shepherds had almost no possessions to speak of. Many of them lived with their sheep, and that was their entire life. And so when the shepherds came to the manger to visit Jesus, they didn't bring gifts because they didn't have anything to offer 
other than themselves. The wise men, they were the polar opposite. They had the means to make the long journey from the east. They probably traveled with servants. They probably traveled with a, an entourage with security to keep them safe. And when they arrived, they presented the newborn king with very expensive gifts, bordering on unobtainable for most people. And those gifts were gold and frankincense and myrrh. And we think of gold as being this really, really uh, incredibly valuable item, but frankincense and myrrh were even more valuable than the gold was in that time. So these were incredibly pricey gifts that they presented to Jesus. And so finally, the third dichotomy that we see between these two groups of men is they had to travel vastly different distances to get to Jesus. Luke says that the shepherds were very close. I mean, they were close enough to get there not long after Jesus was born. Uh, he may have only been a few hours old when they arrived at the manger and saw Jesus for themselves. We don't know how far the wise men had to travel, but we can infer that it could have been as much as a two-year journey for them to get to Bethlehem. Because when Herod asked them exactly when the star had appeared, and Herod could have been patting it a little bit just to be safe, but he responded to their news by ordering all male children in Bethlehem aged two or younger to be killed. So that way his, the threat to his throne would be eliminated. In any case, the wise men had been on this journey for a long, long time. And verse 11 says that by the time they arrived, Mary and Joseph had moved out of the stable, were living in a house. They came from the far reaches of the known world, while the shepherds were as close to the birth as the nearby hills around Bethlehem. So bottom line, these men were as different as you can get. The shepherds and the wise men were on opposite ends of just about every scale that you can measure. And we can learn a lot from their differences. And here's the first incredible truth I want us to see this morning. God sent this invitation to two vastly different groups of people so we would know from the start that Jesus came for everyone. The shepherds and the wise men were completely opposite. And I believe that was intentional because God bridged everything in these groups. Rich or poor, educated or illiterate, near or far, Jew or Gentile. Crispus is not just for one segment of society or the people who live in one area of the planet. It's for everyone. And you might be someone that people look past most of the time. You blend into the background. You don't stand out. You might be the center of attention in every room that you walk into. At work, you might be just another cog in the machine, just getting the job done, or you could be the CEO. You may be near Christ, raised in a Christian home, or as far from him as you can get, growing up in an environment where Jesus was never mentioned other than as a curse word. The circumstances we come from will never keep us from Jesus. They can't. Because Jesus did not come to be the savior of some. He came to be the savior of the entire world. Jesus didn't come just for a select group. He didn't come for this individual or that. He came for all of us. He came for all of mankind. And no, no background that you bring to the table is going to prevent you from coming to faith in Jesus because Jesus came for everyone. There is not one person alive or who has ever lived that Jesus did not give his life for. Not one person that God hasn't shown them the light and said the answer is this way. 
2 Peter 3.9 tells us he does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. I mean, it doesn't get more clear than that. Everyone is God's target. And everyone has no qualifiers. Not everyone who is good enough, everyone who comes from the right family, everyone who is born in the correct part of the world, not everyone of a particular race. Everyone means just that. Everyone. As the angels told the shepherds that night, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. Not a few, not most, all. This good news was not for the shepherds. It was not for the wise men. It was for the world to discover the joy of Jesus coming to earth. But here's what's cool about that. With all of these people, and everyone is a whole lot of numbers, there's a seemingly infinite number of ways that people find Jesus. Now make sure you hear me right here. The Bible is clear that there is one path to God. And that one path to God is Jesus. There are people who would say there are many paths to God. There's many ways to get to God. There's not. Scripture's clear on this. John 14, 6, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. That's it. Case closed. Jesus said it. It's done. Jesus is the only way to God. But even though there's only one way to God, there are all kinds of ways to find Jesus. And that's why I love hearing people's faith stories, because there's so many different and unique ways that people discovered faith in Christ. There are as many paths to Jesus as there are people, because everyone finds him differently. God draws people differently. God leads people differently. Some find him as a small child. Some find him as a, a teenager. Some find him on their deathbed. We all meet Jesus at different times and in different ways. The important thing is that you meet him. The important thing is that you discover God's amazing love for you that was evidenced by him sending Jesus 2,000 years ago. And what's the same is what happens when we do find Jesus. We find him in different ways, but the common point is this, and we see this from the shepherds and the wise men as well. The next thing we can learn from them is this. Our primary response to Jesus coming should be worship. That should be our primary response. That should be our, our natural response to Jesus coming is worship. This is what both groups did when they found Jesus. The wise men bowed and worshiped. In fact, they even told Herod that they wanted to find him so they could worship him. Said, hey, we have come so that we could worship the king. And when the shepherds got back to the fields after their visit with Jesus, the Bible describes the moment this way in Luke 2 verse 20. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. And as we celebrate Jesus this year, let's remember that the way that we best honor and remember the birth of Jesus is not with our culture's obsession with things and accumulating more stuff, but with worship. That's how we should approach Christmas. That should be our top priority. That should be who we are. That should be how we celebrate is through worship, with giving, with giving Jesus everything that he deserves, our worship, our time, our treasure, our lives. Give everything to Jesus this season. Worship, basically, is giving our lives to Jesus. 
We, we incorrectly think, equate worship with singing and singing songs together. That is one aspect of an act of worship where we ascribe that, that worth to God through the songs that we sing. But there's so many other ways we worship. Basically, worship is a, a lifetime of obedience and surrender to God. That's what worship is. It's making him Lord and King of every decision that we make. And ironically, Herod understood that. And he didn't want to share his throne, so he sent his soldiers to find and kill the Christ child because Herod wasn't willing to bow the knee. Herod wasn't willing to give up his throne. And sadly, there are times when every one of us is like Herod. I mean, we're not out to kill Jesus, but we don't worship him as Lord of all. And the problem is you can't rule your life and have Jesus rule it as well. You can't rule your life and have Jesus rule it as well. It's one or the other, not both. Uh, but we try anyway, and we say things, you know, maybe we don't even say things, but we certainly think it, or we certainly act like it. You can rule God as long as it's okay with me and you don't encroach upon areas that I've decided are my domain. God, I, I give you 90%. God, I give you 83% but I'm holding on to the rest of this. 99% surrender is complete rebellion. If we don't get to the point of full submission, of full surrender to Jesus, then we haven't really surrendered to Jesus. That doesn't mean we're going to act perfect, we're going to mess up, but we give him that place of authority in our lives. And it's never going to work that way because we're not worshipers if we're not surrendering we're holding back and the rich full abundant life that jesus came to bring lies on the other side of a life of constant worship and surrender that's where that rich full and abundant life comes from of continually saying jesus you are on the throne not me but here's the thing if we do surrender if we give our lives to Jesus and make him the Lord of our lives, then we come to the third thing that we learn about the shepherds and the wise men and how they encountered him. And that's this. Your life is always different on the other side of meeting the real Jesus. Your life will always be different on the other side of that encounter. But before you get all amen on me, you know, you may be saying amen there. Let me ask a question. Before the shepherds encountered the angels, where were they? The shepherds were in darkness. When they got back to the hillside after finding Jesus, where were they? Back in darkness. Sometimes the circumstances that we find ourselves in don't seem to indicate some great change has taken place. We look around us a lot in this world and we see darkness. And it's not what we hoped it would be. 2020 might be an indicator of that for some. Uh, a lot of people are pretty glad to look at 2020 in the rearview mirror. Uh, but we have no promise that 2021 is going to be better, do we? I mean, if we, if in fact, what the Bible talks about the end times and the soon return of Jesus, it indicates it's going to keep getting worse. Yeah, fun message, Pastor Jeff. Thank you so much for that encouragement this Christmas season. Um, but really, that's what the Bible teaches us. And we need to be ready because it's, we're not promised that life is going to turn around and everything's going to be better. And when we go through seasons like this, I mean, some of you lost jobs this year. Some lost people that you love. Some went through a hard time physically. Some suffered with depression. 
And when you look at that, you can stop and you can wonder, wait, how is my life different on the other side of meeting Jesus? Because it seems like still a whole lot of junk is there. It seems like a whole lot more of the same. But let's go back to the shepherds. When they got back to the hillside, they were still surrounded by darkness. Their environment didn't change, did it? What changed was who they were. And when we meet Jesus, God doesn't change the world around us. He puts his spirit in us. When we meet Jesus, he doesn't change the world around us. He puts his spirit in us. The first Christmas night created this dividing line between different eras of darkness. There's pre-manger darkness and there's post-manger darkness. More on that in a second. I'll come back to that. The angels weren't there to end the night. Their light shined for one purpose, to provide that irresistible draw to seek out Jesus, a flash of light that showed the way to the greater light. And this is where we get stuck sometimes because we pray for a light that will banish darkness forever and get us out of it. But that's not what God has promised us. And here's a critical point that I want you to hear this morning. We want to escape but God tells us to stay in the darkness and rescue others from it. We want to escape, but God tells us to stay and rescues others from it. When you are surrounded by darkness, remember that the light of Christ is in you and look around for someone that needs to be shown the way, that your light could provide that irresistible draw to seek out Jesus. God has a plan in the middle of darkness. In fact, that's when his plans spring to life is out of darkness. When scripture talks about the resurrection, we're introduced to it this way. While it was still dark, the same is true for the birth of Jesus. It happened before the angels arrived. During the dark hours of the night, Jesus was born. God is at work before we see him working. Before we see his plan begin to unfold, God is at work and nothing is going to stop him. The darkness can't hold God back. Psalm 139.12 says, To you the night shines as bright as day. Nothing will keep God from working out his plan. The darkness and the circumstances of life that terrify us and stop us in our tracks are not an obstacle for God. What we see as insurmountable, God sees as an opportunity to work his plan. I mentioned earlier that there is pre-manger darkness and there is post-manger darkness. Let me explain that. Up until this point, when the, the, the angels appeared to the shepherds, no one had ever lived in a world where the Son of God had lived with us as a fellow human being. Prior to the incarnation, God had not fully revealed himself yet. And as the shepherds sat out in their field, they were living in a world that could only see the outlines of God's redemptive plan. But then, just like Isaiah predicted, a light exploded on the people sitting in that pre-manger darkness. The birth of Christ changed everything for them and for us. Suddenly, there was physical evidence of spiritual action. The hopes of thousands of years were no longer just hopes and prayers and waiting. They were about to be fulfilled within the lifespan of a real live person in Jesus. The hopes and fears of all the years were met in him that night. It was the reality 
of Jesus, not the light of the angels that stuck with the shepherds. As glorious as the, the heavenly choir had looked and sounded out in that field, it paled in comparison to the staggering truth that Jesus represented. And even as they were filled with wonder, the shepherds were given only the smallest glimpse of what was coming. Their understanding was limited to whatever promise they could imagine from this newborn baby. Maybe he would grow up to, to be a king. Maybe he would lead them uh, out from underneath Roman's tyranny. <coughs> but they didn't know that Jesus would literally calm storms. They didn't see him heal the sick or raise the dead or feed the crowds. They knew nothing of the cross, let alone the resurrection. God didn't show them the Holy Spirit's work at Pentecost or how the gospel would advance tirelessly around the globe for the next 2,000 years. They didn't have a clue, yet the shepherds had enough light in that moment from that encounter to march back into their dark night rejoicing and praising God because they were on the other side of the manger. They had seen the truth. And sometimes, unfortunately, we act as though what we're going through is pre-manger darkness, that we don't have an answer. When God seems silent, when we can't figure out a way forward, when we wonder if God is there, but the arrival of Jesus into the world showed us once and for all that God is here. God is Emmanuel. God is with us. And when you're in the middle of darkness, Understand that you are right where the light can shine the brightest and that light is in you. Darkness is an opportunity for light to shine even brighter and that light is in you. And I don't mean to trivialize or minimize the dark times that you could be walking through. When you're in one, it is painful. It's difficult. But as believers, our darkness is always post-manger. Our darkness is forever against the backdrop of the light of Christ. And Jesus never leaves our side through any season of darkness. Romans 8 tells us that nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God. Someday, morning will come, church. Jesus will end darkness forever. And we will live for eternity in the light of his love but for now, we need to live in post-manger darkness, to live differently than those who have no hope. We can obey the angel's command to not be afraid. The one born to us that night is still good news for great joy for all people. And the most important truth in that Jesus came for all people is that Jesus came for you. Never lose sight of that incredible incredible truth. Yes, Jesus came for all mankind, but found in that is that Jesus came for you. And I want to encourage you this morning to respond to the light of Christ in your life the way the shepherds and the wise men did, the way billions of people have done over the last 2,000 years. Worship him. Surrender your life to him. If you're at home uh, when we finish, turn on some worship music or fire up YouTube and find some worship videos there. Stop and worship him as a family this morning. If you're at one of our host homes, press in during the worship time today and let the light of Christ truly fill you today as you give everything to him. Let's make Christmas everything it's supposed to be and worship Christ, the newborn king. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. 
We thank you for the incarnation, for the miraculous birth 2,000 years ago. God, we thank you for the shepherds and the wise men and, and what we can learn from them and their response. And God, we, we fully believe that you came for everyone. You, you, you came into this world and that moment when you were born was not just for the wise men, was not just for the shepherds. It wasn't just for Mary and Joseph. It wasn't just for the Jews. It wasn't just for the people in the Palestinian region. It was for everyone, everyone who would ever live. You came for us. You came for me. And Jesus, we thank you for that. And I pray that you would help us to have the right response as we celebrate your birth, and that is to worship. God, let us worship you with everything we have. Let us worship you, God, like you deserve to be worshiped. And God, I pray that you would help us as we live in darkness. God, we live surrounded by darkness so much of the time. God, I pray that that light that is inside of us would burn so brightly that it would be this compelling reason for others to seek out Jesus. Let us light the way for others to find their way to you like we have done. And God, when we want to escape, I pray that you would help us to stay where we are and show others the way out. God, let us worship you today. Let us surrender, not just today, but every day. God, let us learn what it means to worship Christ, the newborn King. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.